This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thank you for downloading this Intelligence Squared podcast. For more information on our debates, talks and discussions, visit intelligencesquared.com and sign up to the newsletter. Right. Um, as this is an art fair context, and you've all got many important things to do later this evening, we're going to be very tight tonight. We will finish at 8 o'clock. So um, the motion is art today has sold out to the market. Uh, has it? Did it before? Do you blame Rubens? I blame Titian. He was the first major Western artist who painted what he wanted to do uh, rather than what he was commissioned to do. So, in a sense, he was chasing the market. Or was he? Perhaps he wasn't. Maybe it was Michelangelo who received about two million in today's money, two million pounds, for painting the Sistine Chapel. Is that selling out to the market or just great art being well rewarded? I don't know. Who knows? Well, these four people do. And they're each going to speak for between nine and ten minutes. Um, We're going to be rigorous with that timing. Uh, I'm not going to show any... Um, uh, I'm going to be neutral. But if, uh, if people are really pithy and do it under the time, you might favour them with your vote. Um, because um, the point is to get questions from you as well and to kick this uh, motion around. Uh, Art Today has sold out to the market. Uh, the first speaker speaking for the motion is uh, the Art Newspaper's editor-at-large, the Financial Times' art market columnist, the author of a wonderful book, actually, uh, on the explosion of the art market in the 21st century, also called Big Bucks, um, and I think known to many of you. Georgina Adam. Right, well, thank you so much for inviting me to take part in this. Of course, as many of you know, I've been writing about the art market for, for many years, actually more years than I dare tell anybody probably before you were in, even in short pants. Uh, but it's given me a front row seat to, um, to watch the art market and see the evolution and see what's happening. And probably after tonight, I won't be in that front seat anymore. I'll be on the nearest plane back and never come back. But anyway, I'm here to defend the proposition that art has sold out to the market today. Now, I would like to have one caveat at the beginning, is that genera- generalizations are always hopeless. You, you, you know, I mean, you can always... Generalization is meaningless. And I think that there are masses of artists who have not sold out to the market. I think it's important to say that at the beginning. Uh, The problem is you probably haven't heard of the ones who haven't sold out to the market because they're doing their thing. They maybe are not backed by a big, powerful gallery. They don't have public relations. They don't have shows in uh, museums. And I think that um, Vanessa will come on to that. Um, So they're, they're not really getting the bandwidth. But my argument is that money and high prices have had a corrupting influence on a lot of artists, not all of them, and on the sort of art that they're making. In fact, I'm going to give you three ways in which I think that there's been this 
this corrupting influence on what artists are doing. And then there's a fourth way, which is also very important. So my first point is that uh, what a lot of art is being made for the market today. Now, no doubt our esteemed colleagues will argue that it was ever thus, but I do think there's a huge, and with globalization and, and an adaptation to the market, which didn't exist so much before. The second point that I'm going to make is the way it's produced. And the third point I'm going to make, and don't get too excited here, but I am going to talk about size, okay? Now, let's be clear. Nobody wants artists to starve. On the contrary, it's brilliant if they make money. After all, we're here, an art fair, art exhibitions, all of this, never let's forget, is all built on the creativity of artists. They're at the the bottom of this whole structure. And so much the better if they're making lots of money. That's great. That's wonderful. But uh, have some of them sold out to the market and made themselves very rich? I'm thinking of people like Tracy Eamon, Damien Hirst, Jeff Koons, Anish Kapoor, Zheng Fangzhu, Richard Prince, Yayo Kusama. I could go on. Those are just a few examples. Some even have their own museums. And I think we just recently heard that uh, Damien Hirst is going to show Jeff Koons in his private museum, which is an interesting little I scratch your back, you scratch your back. Anyway... So the price, in my opinion, of these fortunes being made is the death of creativity. Uh, The art they're making is no longer original, inspiring, challenging, or moving. I think that many of them are churning out what have become, in fact, luxury goods. Uh, Remember Damien Hirst's sale at Sotheby's in 2008, in which Sotheby's looked like a luxury goods store with all those artificial diamonds and, you know, butterflies and spins and things like that. I'm going to argue, I am arguing, that Hearst and his like are not making art, but they're making branded, predictable products which are sold by the mega galleries across the world. Um, The mega galleries, it's interesting, and this is a real phenomenon of our time, is the rise of these huge galleries with very big staffs. They have a number of outlets throughout the world. In the case of Gagosian, I think he's made it to number 15. And um, they have established clients whose interest in art is often more investment than passion, and they need to produce a lot. The galleries expect the artists to produce um, art that is going to be shown around the world and is recognizable, unchallenging, and can even be converted into an investment product, which is, I don't think, what art should be around, but I will come back to that. And I think one of the problems is that these artists are pandering to the market by making stuff that reflects the taste of the buyers. They reflect the taste, they get the cash that follows, but I'm afraid that it means that some of them are losing their artistic integrity. They have sold out. Uh, I'm not just talking about my poster boy, Hearst, or even Coons, who's another poster boy, but what about... Tracy Eamon's Neons, for example, which say something really challenging like, I've always loved you, and it's in a pink uh, heart. Um, Coming soon to an art fair near you. Anish Kapoor's Mirrors, coming soon as well to an art fair near you. Barry Flanagan's Leaping Hairs, Richard Prince's Instagram Appropriations, Gilbert and George Photographs, or Kusama's Pumpkins. How many of those have you seen? And while we all admire Aya Weiwei for his bicycles, I don't know, and well, for his human rights stance, how many bicycles does the world need in a stack? I don't think these artists are really pushing forward the boundaries of art. 
I don't think they're experimenting. I don't think they're seeking new ways of being creative. So my second point, I'm having to go really fast here because I'm terrified of Tim. Um, by jumping on this bandwagon, artists have tied themselves to a, an insatiable beast because they have to produce. They have to produce more and more product. Obviously, the poster boy here is Damien Hurst's 1,365 spot paintings. When I say his, his assistant's 1,365 spot paintings. And I just wonder if the 1,000th spot painting really adds anything to the very good idea and the very nice work that he did back in 1988, or is he supplying the market? Uh, let's also think about the, the use of technology. For example, Wade Guyton, who's been using inkjet, inkjet print, printers to churn out the stuff. Um, I'm not sure that artists went to art school in order to produce this colossal amount of material but it's necessary because of, of the exhibitions around the world, the biennales and the art fairs. And I don't think that they, particularly when they were at art school, wanted to produce abstract rectangular works that hang on the wall. But that's what they, they did. And here I'd like to give the example of Lucian Smith who was a painter who filled fire extinguishers with paint and then sprayed canvases. And I have read, and I'm not quite sure, but I have read he could do 300 at a time. Well, that's production that is not, in my opinion, art. Another problem with having to produce a lot of art is that it inevitably leads to what is politely called appropriation and sometimes in lawsuits is called uh, um, uh, plagiarism, i.e. copying, and just think about Richard um, Prince, who has been in trouble for plagiarism, or uh, when you think about what he did with his Instagrams, which is when he screen-grabbed Instagrams, added a line of his own onto the bottom, produced a huge series of them, and sold them for $90,000 a pop. Uh, I think that's laziness. I'm not sure that's really making art. So I know you've been waiting for size, because that's the important thing. Uh, I'm going to talk about the size. Because there are an enormous number of buyers today who have museums and they want big, and the artists are also producing big. Once again, I'm arguing in order to supply the market. So producing big is actually quite difficult, takes a while. I'm not sure that a 74-panel Gilbert and George, as was seen last year at Art Unlimited in Basel, really adds any, anything to the Gilbert and Georges you already know. And, of course, going beyond that, artists are also producing blow-ups. So we have Paul McCarthy a couple of years ago at Freeze in New York who produced an 80-foot-high blow-up balloon dog, uh, which was, of course, an appropriation of a coon's blow-up balloon of Kuhn's balloon dog. So here you have both blow-up plus appropriation altogether, or copying, if you like. Uh, and let's not forget Mark Quinn when Alison Lapper, his statue of Alison Lapper, he produced a blow-up during the Venice Biennale last year, which sat alongside the Church of San Giorgio Maggiore, and when it, the wind came up, it had to be deflated because it was... Anyway, and there was a lot of jokes were made about hot air at that time. I'm going to end with the problem of this, which is the commodification of art. Uh, I think that artists producing these long series of similar works, churning it out, are playing into the financiers' hands of treating art as an asset class. Financiers like lots of detailed indices to assess the value of what they're buying, and this is playing into their hands. 
The whole purpose of art for me is to be seen. One hopes that an artist makes their work to be seen. The moment the financier's in there, what do they do when they buy something? They stick it into a free port behind a 50-centimeter steel door, and it's never seen again until it reemerges to make some money. And I'm going to end with what Robert Hughes said, and it was critical. He said, the new job of art is to sit on the wall and get more expensive. And my argument is that artists have played into that hand. Thank you. Now, fo- following on from that eloquent, passionate, and utterly depressing scenario <laughs> is uh, our first speaker against the motion, a real live artist as an art fair. Marvellous. Um, and it's an award-winning Pakistani-American artist who's got a beautiful show at the Asia Society here in Hong Kong, which if you haven't seen, I'm hoping over the next few days you will. Um, please welcome Shazia Sikander. I'm here today to represent a position that clearly sides with the art. Art has not sold out to the market. Art is life. Art survives time. Art transcends. Art creates. Art invents the market. Now, come on. I am the artist. I have an insider story to share here. But before I venture into my personal trajectory, I do want to say good evening And thank you so much for this warm welcome. I'm honored to be recognized by such an esteemed organization as Intelligence Squared and to be part of this special night. I grew up in Pakistan during the Ziyad's military regime in the 1980s. The cultural, social, political shifts occurring during Pakistan then were radical in that religion was steadily becoming institutionalized. Even going to an art school was thought of as immoral. It was precisely that mindless malaise injected and perpetuated by the dictatorial regime that pushed me as a young woman into the direction of art. Ladies and gentlemen, it was not the market. In fact, choosing art over marriage was definitely not the path perceived for material success. Furthermore, to my mom's dismay, I took up the craft-based, labor-intensive practice of miniature painting at a time when no one else was interested in it. I was in an odd position, as the medium was seen as fundamentally derivative and cliched, incapable of intellectual rigor. Indeed, miniature painting was an anomaly amid the highly westernized teaching methods in the mid-late 80s in Lahore, Pakistan. Miniature painting represented the other, because it was regarded as insignificant and dismissed for its inability to be avant-garde. It was precisely its status as the underdog that inspired me to launch an imaginative inquiry into deconstructing and dislodging it from the then-entrenched canon of historical representation. At that time, as a young artist, I was intuitively seeking a catalyst for opening new territories and dialogue, That impulse to go against the grain remains at the core of how I think and work. For me, art has been a catalyst for self-awareness as well as an instinct to imagine the future. An artist often has the burden to reimagine. In reimagining lies the ability to break molds and re-examine the norms. Taking risk and seeking the unknown is the hallmark of art that soars and is not bound by time. 
In fact, such art that seeks to survive the dimension of time knows that its posterity lies in the collective wisdom and not in the markets operating in the proverbial East or the West. Such art dictates its own life. The risks born out of innate curiosity and passion guided me through the 20s, through my 20s, 30s, to this moment. The miniature paintings I created in Pakistan stood out because they went beyond the traditional illustration. The recognition I received at that time impacted the miniature painting department at the National College of Arts directly and resulted in an influx of students operating to specialize in it. I was hired as an instructor immediately upon graduation, making me the first woman to teach in that department. There was demand on my work, and I could have sold out to the market, but I did not. I wanted to learn, grow, and gain the objectivity that often only distance affords. So when the opportunity came to travel to the U.S. for an exhibition of my work at the Pakistani Embassy in Washington, D.C., I took it. I fell in love with Eva Hesse's work. My work started reflecting an evocative engagement with feminism and sexuality. I became interested in cultural semiotics within religious representations, as well as in juxtaposing anti-classical impulses in Western art, such as mannerism with a variety of outside aesthetics, works by David Hockney, Bupen Kukker, outsider artists such as Forrest Best, women artists such as Frida Kahlo, Anna Mandiata, Nancy Sparrow, and accepted among art artists such as John Cage and Jasper John never felt incongruous to my sensibilities of locating freedom within confinement. I got my break at the Whitney Biennial in 97 with a simultaneous exhibition at the Drawing Center, and my first ever reviews were in New York Times at the same day by the two most respected critics, Roberta Smith and Michael Kimmelman. Again, the market came knocking, and this time it wanted to break down my studio door, but I resisted. I saw that my work was being seen and valued primarily for its labor. The more detailed the paintings, the more interest. My entire practice of dismantling and deconstructing miniature painting had been a conceptual exercise. I was not afraid of labor, but I did not want the work to be seen only from one lens, but to be equally respected for its ability to be inventive. So instead of making the factory-style production of, mi of miniatures that the art world demanded, I started making work which was conceptually challenging, experimental, and difficult to sell. And it made me happy. It did not make me rich, but I found support within the smaller academic institutions and museums, the non-for-profits, and visionaries like the late Linda Pace. My launch of contemporary miniature painting in Pakistan gained high visibility in the U.S. and internationally in the mid and late 90s, instigating a movement that almost a decade later has come to be known as the neo-miniature. Ladies and gentlemen, the irony of the situation is that the neo-miniature is one of the fastest money-making art for the young artists of Pakistan, packaged perfectly for the market. I may have contributed to it, but I did not benefit from it. As an artist, I am daily compelled to inquire how to create work that is alive, that can dynamically relate to its surrounding space, technical characteristics, and temporal experience by embracing the unfathomable power of the imagination. The mundaneness of the market is not what inspires my art. To seek real inspiration, art has to dig its own heart in pursuit of its own truth. 
Market is not part of that process of inquiry. It is in the cavern of human interiority that a soul of sufficient strength can find voice, a voice not delimited by the personal, but strange and wondrous, robust enough to intimate the ineffable. Words of wisdom expressed by a fellow artist, the Pulitzer Prize-winning author Ayad Akhtar, in discussion with whom I created new work currently on view in Hong Kong at the Asia Society and here at Art Basel. The collaborative work, Portrait of the Artist, was born out of mutual inquiry into creative revelation not to cater to the market. Art today has definitely not sold out to the market. Take, for example, my current exhibitions here at the Asia Society and the Maritime Museum. It was precisely a year today, from today that I decided to write to the Asia Society after being inspired by its site and history as former Explosives magazine compound. It was my instinct and my passion that made me reach out and not a system of agents working in the background on my behalf. Throughout my practice, I have aimed to create work with unpredictable diversity, reflecting a multifaceted imagination, open to influences and experiences. Making the same work again and again has never been my forte or my desire. It bores me to death. Despite the pressures of the art world to forge a brand around an artist's work, I have managed to create diverse and challenging work which demands respect and independence and is collected with enthusiasm by many museums and individuals. Its true value will ultimately be, be judged in years to come, but while I'm alive and full of energy, I am interested in making work that comes from a deep inquiry into my own search of truth. Ladies and gentlemen, I urge you to reflect on how essential imagination and creativity is to human experience. There will always be creators of integrity alongside the creators of market. There's room for independent artists, the independent art, and the independent collector. Independent mind gives birth to new ideas and new trends to move us forward. Some art may be selling out, but artists do what they have to do, and many that may be undiscovered in their lifetime do get discovered with the future generations. Art that survives time does so precisely because it did not sell out. Time is the nemesis, my friends, to the perceived authority dictated by the market. While the market functions as the peanut gallery, great art stages new and challenging ideas and ultimately shapes human history. Thank you. Thank you. Time may be the nemesis, but you were bang on. Wonderful. <laughs> now, our second speaker for the motion um, is the founder and director of the Carlos Ishikawa Gallery in London. Um, Vanessa Carlos is one of an, a wave of new gallerists who are seen in many circles to be changing the face of the gallery scene in London. So, without further ado, Vanessa, to the stage, to the podium. Thank you. Thank you. Um, like most of you here, I really do love art, and I don't think that most art has sold out to the market, or I wouldn't be doing what I do. I wouldn't be running a gallery and working with artists. But I think that art is in a really bad place right now, and I'm genuinely worried about its future. Um, I think it's important that we recognize the ways that this present moment is unprecedented in terms of how art is compromised and sold out. 
Um, I don't think it's compromised and sold out for reasons that people normally reach for when they talk about this. So, for example, for me, the issue is not art being sold. There's such a long history of patronage that goes back centuries. Um, the issue is also, for me, not really to do with artists who make you know, bread and butter works, meaning works that are uh, domestically manageable, because I know for a fact that most artists who do that are really trying to raise funds to produce things that are much more challenging and unsellable, like performances and installations and films. Um, Jeff Koons and Andy Warhol are actually two of my all-time favorite artists, and I think that just because their work was in part uh, addressing the environment or the capitalist structure that they exist in, or just because their work is ambivalent about its relationship with money, does not mean that the only thing they're interested in is making objects to sell. I think that's a very simplistic way to look at their practices. Um, I also think it's a little bit conservative to talk about production and assistance as if they're such a bad thing, um, as if they're problematic. I believe that, um, like Jeff Kuhn said, of fabrication and assistance, he said, as long as you're making the gesture that you want to make in your art, it's the same. And I think that that's what comes with the development of conceptual art. Obviously, my issue is also not with commercial galleries. Um, I think that a lot of gallerists are very passionate, overeducated people who have um, given up on much more lucrative careers to do what they love. I think that they are often accused of having a sort of sell, sell, sell mentality, but um, I think most of them just want to have ends meet so that they can continue doing what they love. Um, and in London, financial data for companies is actually available online, so I pulled um, all the data from the galleries that are international on the international circuit of contemporary art, um, young galleries and established galleries. And I found that on average, galleries are 11 years old in London, but 53% of them are still making a loss. So that goes to show I don't think that anybody um, operates a gallery thinking that it's a, it's a money-making machine. Um, you know, galleries are often accused of greed, but actually they give um, the first platform of support for artists and they take the biggest risks before museums can come along and cherry pick from them. So if I have no problem with all of these things that people would normally take as indicators for why art has sold out, um, why am I speaking for this motion? So what I think is different now is that since the global financial crisis in 2007, the idea of art as financial instrument has become really extreme. You know, people have always parked money um, in artworks as investment, but recently it's just out of control. Um, one of my friends is a studio manager for one of the most famous blue chip artists, and he told me that he had this moment of seeing 10 crates leave the studio and each one was labeled to a different art fund and he wondered to himself how many of those paintings would see the light of day before they hit the auction block. And it was a very sort of poignant moment for him. So this idea of art as, stocked for the f as, of art as stock for the first time, because it's so extreme, has trickled down to these levels that it never reached before, which are of young art and artists. This practice of flipping, of selling artworks in a short-term gain for huge profits, has also got completely out of control. Um, a dealer told me about how they sold an artwork to a client uh, and then found out that it was being already offered to a third party when it was still hanging in their booth. Um, I work with Oscar Murillo, and I've worked with him from the start of his career, so I've had a sort of baptism of fire in how vile 
some of these speculators can be. Um, I know of art advisors and artists who would have meetings scheming how they could together manipulate their markets. And again, this is not a new practice at all, but it's never been a reality for artists who are fresh out of art school like it has been in the last few years. My generation has to deal with things like art rank or the pseudoscience of art rank with the supposed algorithm they have that can tell you when to buy, sell, or liquidate artists. And auction houses are always announcing some new auction with even younger artists who barely have a primary market, much less a secondary one. And of course, the artists don't make a penny from those sales. I think that this way of thinking is also affecting how young artists produce or handle their works. So recently, in the press, we read about how Ibrahim Mahama, a young artist from Ghana, cut up his paint. He made a big installation a canvas sheet or of jute sacks and how he cut it up into 294 separate artworks to give to Stefan Simkovitz to sell. Um, or equally, the New York Times reported how Amalia Ullman um, cut one of her paintings into 12 individual paintings, also for Stefan Simkovitz to sell. And, you know, this is not about my relative privilege or my position of judgment um, in relation to these artists. And we can talk about these artists being naive or exploited themselves, but my point is that they are complicit in hacking up their work to make more units. Um, the aftershock of the crisis has also trickled down to the museum level in a more extreme way, with the funding cuts that have sort of been across the board in, in many countries. Um, and Artnet reported that a third of US museum solo shows between 2007 and 13 were from artists that come from the same five mega galleries. In the Guggenheim, it was as bad as 90%, so 11 out of 12 of their shows were from artists from the same five mega galleries. And sure, we can say that that's because these artists are established or acclaimed, but I think it would be really naive not to see that this points to more than that. Biennials and museums can't afford to fund shows anymore, so they're inclined to opt for artists from bigger galleries who can pick up the check. And this also means that artists become more inclined to go to bigger galleries who can pick up those checks. It helps mega galleries consolidate um, their position by attracting artists from non-mega galleries. And, um, and it helps them consolidate by museums validating their programs and therefore increasing the value of the work they sell. And of course, these mega galleries, um, they're bigger machines that need more feeding commercially. So for me, the cycle goes on and on in this direction of uber-commercialization and art as financial instrument. Um, so I think that art today has sold out to the market, and the reason why we need to recognize that is so that we can rescue it. Thank you. Wonderful. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Saks.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Pithy and... Um... She threw us a curveball at the beginning where that was going. Wonderful. <laughs> now, finally, our last speaker against the motion uh, is the London-based art dealer, curator, lecturer, uh, prolific writer and all-round Renaissance man. Uh, welcome to the podium, Kenny Schachter. Hello. Thank you very much for having me. 
and I am against the motion that art is defined by the market. I'll start off by saying that I'm a very materialistic person, and my business is dictated by all of this market machinations that we're talking about. But just like all of you, I've paid my own dime to be here today and speak to you, as you have to pay for admission, and I've come to Hong Kong to participate in this debate and see the fair. Art is a human impulse that dates back into it's a form of human expression that is no different from, say, the urge to go to the bathroom. It's something that is innate, can't be helped, and it's part of the human condition. Art has always existed. The first form of art, per se, on the wall of a cave, you can't make an argument that someone was trying to flip a cave drawing. Wouldn't quite be the easiest thing. Art is about passion. It's about self-expression. And it, again, it's an innate human characteristic to express oneself. As Shazia said, a passionate argument. If you read between the lines, Vanessa spoke so... Vanessa is... I mean, we've had a great relationship together. I consider myself almost a mentor for her. And she's someone who is at the forefront of caring about art for the sake of art's sake. And I don't even believe that she fully believes what she just said five minutes before me. <laughs> because if she did, she wouldn't have... She just started a new initiative in London called Kondo, which was an incredible gesture. And this was a way to try to unseat the status quo and find a new form of art fairs, per se. Because for young, young dealers like Vanessa, as she expressed herself... They can participate in some of these fairs, which every day there's another fair. In every venue where there's a big fair, there's always 10 to 15 ancillary fairs, and this is no different. And it's a, it, often young, young dealers uh, can participate in a fair, and they can sell out their entire booth and still manage to lose money. So I'm getting too far afield. I know time is limited. Passion drives art, plain and simple. An example, my local hospital where I live, I live in London now, I'm from New York, and in Chelsea... The hospital is accredited as a museum, one of the only hospitals in the world. Okay, they have a Veronese in the chapel, but they commission living artists to make art in all of the rooms in the hospital and in all the public spaces in the hospital. Why? Not to make money, not for a flip, but for the very fact that they've done clinical studies that like having a, a Labrador, living with art can actually extend your life. Shorter hospital stays, less medications. Can you argue with that? Art is a language, it's a means of expression, and it's integral to being alive, and it will never change. Of course, there's always going to be people that have the wrong approach, and we'll talk about selling out, like that is why we're here. So, in today, we are in the most volatile, uncertain economic times that I can remember in the 25 years that I've been in this business, and we're talking about selling out. Who can sell out? If you can sell out today in these choppy, volatile times, that's hats off to you because it's an extraordinary feat. Uh, you talk about dealers manipulating markets or creating markets. You can't invent a pop song that succeeds, no matter how badly you want to try. Ask Simon Cowell now, who's floundering. You can't create the great novel because you want to be a famous novelist or a fabulous movie or a play or anything else in the world. There's always going to be people that are going to take a materialistic approach and sell out, but in the art world, it's extraordinarily difficult. I mean, I think most of you, if not all of you, are here because we love art. Art is in our veins. You don't choose to have a career and a life in art. Art, in a sense, chooses you. It's coursing through your circulatory system. And to the point of actually, I mean, you can't even come up with more than six or seven artists that have even had the opportunity to sell out. And with Damien Hirst, he's this kind of 
you know, the boogeyman, let's all attack Damien Hirst. Well, I mean, the first body of work that Damien Hirst has ever made, the vitrines with the animals, and the, these are some of the most extraordinary pieces of art. The fact is, if you want to sell out in art, you have to succeed and make extraordinary work. You have to be a great artist just to even have the opportunity to sell out. So even the worst of them, okay, so Damien Hirst is now churning out products in his own shop, in his own museum. He's vertically integrated and so forth. But the continuity of a still life from a depiction of a deceased animal on a table until you see the thing in the box when he did those very early works in the late, er, in the late 80s to the mid-90s, they're wonderful works. Even the spot paintings, okay, so maybe like 1,212 has a little less significance than the first ones, which he may have even had a hand in, but he made these paintings related to pharmaceuticals, and as you get to be my age, you're taking a pill for one condition or another, and it's an incredible expression of, the, again, you know, Damien Hirst didn't get to be selling all these posters, the poster boy selling posters nonstop, without creating good work. Even Mark Quinn, who has his own gallery booth in Hong Kong Central, I mean, selling out, he's got it made. He's crafting it, manufacturing it, selling out of his studio, and selling, taking it directly to the consumer, but then... He himself has made some wonderful, extraordinary works, casting his head in blood as an incredible kind of express, sculptural expression and self-portrait and so forth. I mean, other people like Jeff Koons, his early works with the vacuum cleaners and his first body. I mean, I'm not a fan of these blue balls. You've seen a couple of them at the fair. I think it's gotten to a point where there's a, a, a removal. And again, or Kusama and her pumpkins. I mean, Kusama is 87 years old. Bless that woman, but she deserves to be able to sell out. And her early works are phenomenal and extraordinary, and it's the same scenario. So in a sense, really, this whole conversation is moot, because only in the wildest stretch of imagination you can say 10 artists have sold out, but these are artists that struggled in the beginning and that made a paradigm shift in the creation of their work to take art someplace else to be in a position to profit from it. Really, what we're talking about is integrity, and I think for sure everyone has it here. I know that I feel wildly passionate about what I do. I would do what I do for free. It drives me closer to my kids. I teach at the University of Zurich. I'll write about this debate, and I'll write about the fair in, um, in, art, in Artnet, which comes out tomorrow. i get my websites correct. <laughs> and all of my hard work to try to sell a painting once in a while affords me the opportunity to speak to people here, to speak to my class in Zurich, I've taught a bit at the Royal College and various other places, and the writing, a way to communicate just these very issues. I mean, I write about the market, but it's the pure underlying quality and merit of art that gets me up in the morning, and I think that you'll all agree. And then our great moderator, who's funnier than I am, this is a perfect example of someone who crossed into the dark side. He had this cushy position in one of the largest commercial galleries in the world, White Cube, and what did he do? He went to the dark side, he went to the not-for-profit sector and joined a museum. So, illustrious broadcaster, very good-looking, fit guy, and now he's working in not-for-profit, fostering museums, and like all of us here, I believe Georgina, everyone cares deeply about art as much as I do, and I'm sure you do too. Absolutely shameless. Flatter of the moderator, then kick him in the nether regions. <laughs> Say that one of the people you've mentored, but she doesn't believe in what she's arguing. Brilliant, <laughs> Kenny. Thank you. Um, I also... I, I, we're going to throw it to you in, in a minute. And the notion that um, art's innate like the urge to go to the bathroom or like a Labrador, it can lengthen your life. You've got to respond to that. 
surely, from the floor. But thank you all. That was great. Um, I'm going to tell you what the entry poll was uh, before I ask you uh, to ask questions now. Um, there were 18% of you who didn't know. There were 31% of you against the motion. And there were 51% of you for the motion. So there's a majority, small, but a majority nonetheless, of you who came into this debate thinking that you were for the motion. Um, art today is sold out to the market. Right. Uh, questions from the floor. I'm going to try and do them in batches so that we can kick a, a whole range of things around here on the table, on the stage. Um, who's got questions? Uh, gentleman here in the front. There's plenty of questions that I've got if you're not going to ask them, but believe me, I take the opportunity. Uh, this, this question is for uh, Ger Georgina. Um, assuming that uh, the art world has sold out, um, who, who is primarily responsible? Is it the artist? Is it the curator? Is it the director? Or is it someone else? And a second question, which is perhaps has exactly the same answer, who of these individuals are primarily responsible for the success of an artist's work? Oh, okay. Um, yes. So, firstly, I did say at the beginning that I was not talking about all artists. I was talking about a small group. I do think that the big... Oh, okay. Well, no, it, well, I'd be even happier if you didn't agree and I persuaded you over to my side. But anyway, um, so, uh, yes, so the question is, who is responsible? Um, I do think that um, the big galleries, because they're big operations and they've just got to keep selling. So I, I do think that they have quite a bit of responsibility. And I thought Vanessa what she was saying about the speculation about the turning, the commodification of art, I think that's very much to blame as well. I think that really has had an impact. And, and the, second, his, the second part was who's responsible for their success? For the success of, sorry. I'm for art, the successful oh. artists, who's responsible for their success? Is that also the big galleries? Well, you know, that's a really interesting question, one I've never really been able to figure out myself. If Larry Gagosian takes on an artist... Is it because he sees something in that artist that's extraordinary, or is it because the Gagosian machine turns him into a successful artist? And I haven't entirely... I've, I've always wondered about that. Integrity, as Kenny said. Right, yeah, there's a question there, a lady there in the second row. Uh, I think all the artists, uh, big gallery, take, they don't keep them. Sometimes they let them down, and then they are finished. So, so those you didn't hear it, the, the, the accusation, I think, is a question as well, is that the large galleries sometimes, uh, they, they, they don't manage artist careers properly and they let them disappear, they let them down. Uh, not only always large galleries, sometimes big collectors. I mean, the famous case is um, Kia and Charles Saatchi, and he put everything into uh, auction, having bought it, and it was, um, had a very blighting effect on Sandra Kia's um, career. I mean, I think... I, it, Saatchi used to wield a lot of power when the world was m much smaller, and he had a hand in building markets, and sometimes they collapsed. Gagosian, too, maybe 10 years ago, he had a lot more influence to add, say, 10 to 20% of value when he picked up an artist. Now that he has 15 galleries all over the world and he's trading paintings for hundreds of millions of dollars, for a young artist to work with a gallery like Gagosian can almost be seen as a negative in their career. So, I mean, there could be manipulation. Like when you talk about there are big families that we all know, like in New York, and who have hundreds and hundreds of fill-in-the-blanks. And 
they got involved with these spraying in the fire can paintings and all that kind of stuff. You could manipulate markets in the short term from one year, two years, one sale to the next sale. But really, like, like Shazia said, time, history makes art history. Time, it's all about time. So there could be spikes up and there could be, you can have your friends bidding on your own inventory. We all know this kind of stuff happens quite regularly in the quasi-unregulated art market. But, you know, this flip art movement lasted for about two years and then it got destroyed. So you can have the best intent to capitalize on something. But I truly believe we live in an underlying meritocracy where over the course of the long run, quality will shine to the surface and the junk will, f- will, will be separated from the wheat and the chaff. Don't want to be pernickety, but do you really mean quasi-unregulated? It is unregulated, isn't it? The art it? market, as Georgina can account, well, there's 167 laws that she yes. has stated herself in a seminar yes. that yeah. apply. I mean, in America, there's a uniform commercial code. Whenever you buy or sell something to someone, there's literally over 100 rules and regulations that apply. Art is entirely... If I sell you a fake blah, I'm going to go to jail. If I misrepresent... If I act in, a, in, in an inappropriate manner, fraudulently, I will. Su- art is regulated as much as every. I, I'm a lawyer by training. I've been in the fashion business. I've been in the art business. I sell it. I make it. I've done everything you can. Art is regulated. Period. Uh, yes, that is true. It's true that it's much more regulated than people imagine. Nevertheless, there are two things. It's, it's the transparency and the opacity of the art market does make it possible. Um, that is not regulated, for example, in the same way the financial markets are. Sorry, Kenny, but... You for, know. One moment, <laughs> for one moment, I thought the moderator yeah. brought them together, which is actually not my job at all. Uh, yeah, there's a, a woman there in the fourth row. And then the this, is a, this is a question for both sides of the motion. I'm curious um, how you guys are defining selling out. Is it a threshold of a certain amount of money that one's making? Is it the choice to cut up a painting to duplicate it? How, are, how is the panel defining this? Yeah, good question, right. How, oh, how would you define selling out? Uh, I think, like Kenny said, just integrity mm. of intention. Mm. I think not doing what you set out to do, i.e. to make art that's challenging, um, experimental, all of the things that we heard, um, but purely making art to pander to, you know, to, to, to sell it to the highest bidder for as much as possible. How, how, can, you, how can you measure integrity, Vanessa? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Nor do I. I was. That I think was you like you recognise it when you see it. Yeah. Shazia, what, what do you what do you understand by the term selling out? Again, it comes back to creativity, curiosity. So, were neo minimalists, lovely term, miniaturists rather, in Pakistan, were they selling out in a sense? I think it's the the artist has to do what the artist has to do. It's an independent impulse. The market is, 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 is separate. I mean, I'm, I'm idealistic, but cynically idealistic. This morning I received an email from Other Criteria, which is one of Damien Hirst's umbrella corporations, and he was selling the latest iteration of a print based on a painting he made. It must be the 15th or 16th print in 17 different colors, and now he added glitter to it. So that would be a fairly succinct definition of what it is to sell out. <laughs> to make things that, I mean, if you look at the way, when I started in the art world, nobody wanted to be in the art world. It was a very unglamorous place 25 years ago, and the whole global situation hadn't really taken hold of the interdependency of so many different regions caring about art. But um, let's see, where was I? <laughs> 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 the thing is, 
art has become a lifestyle, a luxury brand. And I will agree that, I mean, when I started, there was no Kanye West saying that he would trade two Grammys to be taken seriously in the art world. There was no Adrian Brody making paintings who just sold the dinosaur painting for 100 grand at a benefit here the other day. In Miami during the fair was uh, Lenny Kravitz had a show. Adrian Brody had a show. Miley Cyrus had a show. I mean, where is this coming from? In there, you have me on this side. That's, uh, I believe that in that case, the art has become something else. It's not art. It's not celebrity. It's a piece of celebrity lifestyle. It's become a product in between products and non-products. So if you even ask our friend Damien about his new body of work, he'll put his hand on his arty heart and swear that, it's, that he believes it's the greatest body of work he's ever done. In, I think the prints and all the ephemera can be clearly seen as a sellout. All the prints, all the editions, when you make art in the big size, small size, extra, extra large, extra small, that's a selling out. You know, but if you even ask Jeff Koons about his blue balls, he'll put his hand on his heart and tell you that he thinks that it's his great, one of his great contributions to the world of art. So I don't think even the worst um, people who are guilty of some of these things, and there aren't many because not many have the opportunity, in, if you give them truth serum, they will tell you that this is earnest and sincere work they're doing. Right. There's a question here. Uh, Vanessa, you talked about at the end of your speech that we need to save the art world. Um, I want to know how that could be done. Oh, good question. I think that to have these conversations openly is, is part of it. And I think um, I agree with what that gentleman said, that for me the problem is that the, the, this mood has trickled down further down than it ever has before. Um, and I think that, that it's an important conversation to have, especially for our generation um, going forward. And do we want to inherit this model, you know, or do we want to build something different? So you're saying having open conversations like this is part of the way we can save the art world. So basically the headline from this event is that Intelligence Squared is saving the art world. <laughs> you're welcome. <laughs> yeah, then. Gentleman at the back and then a, a gentleman at the front. It's, yeah. just, just a follow-up. Hands up. A follow-up point from Kinney, what you were saying. To, to, to a certain extent what you, you were saying earlier, you're just your last point, but, but how priced in is the current art market? How priced in is the, is the is uncertainty the, is the, in the market? Is, or more the current value now, how priced in well, I mean, is this, it? This whole, I mean, there are some artists that, we, that, that have been mentioned. I mean, look, I'm not, not going to say that there hasn't been stupid art being made or rampant speculation, but the fact is that I think this, it does, there's been such a, a, a sea change just in the past six months that this whole, I mean, I could think of, 30 or 40 artists, if you look at a Phillips Day sale, you can see, you can just look at the numbers. So there are cases where, like, even Oscar Murillo making 500000 should any artist in his mid-30s be fetching that kind of money? I don't think he has the history yet to, a, to be ascribed a value such as that. So I think that, I mean, in the short term, you see wild swings and vacillations in the prices, but this, the game is over for this, you know, this short-term flipping stuff you can't even effectuate it if you wanted to. It just, you can't do it anymore. And like I said before, in a climate like this, if you look at the auctions coming up in May, I mean, it's going to be a very, you know, of course it gets more blue chip and people go to quality and some of these uh, concerns about art as an asset class and so forth. But there's always going to be a bell's curve of, of, of intent and the purity of people's intent. So... I just think that the opportunities for artists to even sell out are dramatically down than they were five years ago. How much, uh, Vanessa, how much do you um, 
control is an art fair. You have Oscar Murillo's work here. How much do you control the kind of person that's buying it? I mean, the thing about art fairs is you're supposed to increase the number of clients, so you don't always know who these people are. So how much are you making sure that the work isn't being flipped, or is that uncontrollable? I think, you know, one of the ways that is not about controlling it, but that is, is under, underpinning all of this is showing the artist's practice to its true form. So you see the booth we did here is actually pretty experimental. It's an installation um, by Cork, Aaron Annanchai, and Oscar Murillo, who are two sort of quite popular young artists. And we did the same thing at Freeze. It was a performance-based booth. I think that by showing the full space scope of these artists' practices and not reducing them to objects because they're not, that's not what they do. That's one way of already st- like approaching the conversation from a different entry point with the audience and with collectors. Question here at the front, uh, just the second row, just behind you, sir. There's a microphone coming. I, okay, I think uh, we need to really go back to more fundamental question. We are talking about like gallery or artists and the institute, but what about uh, our viewers, our lovers? Like, if you go to old days, people, if you, you, you go to any house, there were paintings hanging on the wall. Like in Korea, for example, 60s, 70s, you know, you could easily see that the calligraphy or, you know, brush painting each house. And then, uh, but nowadays, it's completely gone, you know. I think that's maybe the same in other, other country. So what really happened, you know? When the people are not buying the paintings, they don't hang the painting in their houses. Instead, they're buying like you know something else, television, some other thing. It's like we build, try to build a house, you know, with the sand. So, are you See? saying that? The so we need to really, you know, com- talk with the this how we can communicate, you know, uh, with uh, bring this you know culture back. People really have to live with art in their life, okay? But this, there is a big separation. There is enormous distance now. And it become very professional market. And so what is the point? How are we gonna you know, bring these people you know, to, art, to appreciate art again? Well, let's, get the, let's, uh, let's unfairly ask the gallerists to ask how are you gonna get more people to uh, in- engage domestically with art? Uh. <laughs> I think that actually, you know, with institutions, you as a consumer of culture, consumer of art, you also have the responsibility. You know, why is it that people only go and see the big sellout blockbuster shows? Why aren't more people traipsing around cities going to all these galleries showing like the most cutting edge art for free? So I think that uh, this, this distance of like living with art, that's one thing. Also, you could say people could support young art. It's not that expensive to buy art from a degree show. But I think as consumers of culture, you make that choice every time you buy a museum ticket. And I just would like to add that I don't entirely agree that, 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 that the, the consumer is not engaging with art. If you think about it in Britain, the entrances to Tate, Tate Modern and Tate Britain, they're, they're larger than the entrances to football matches, and they've grown enormously. So I think actually people are engaging with art. They go more to museums than they ever did before. Yes, the Royal Academy had a blockbuster year last year, over a million people, but <laughs> obviously, we are, yes. obviously we don't mention that. Now, <laughs> um, so it's time... For each of the, we're going to go in reverse order now, and each of the panelists will speak very briefly, a minute to two minutes, and summarise their position uh, in the light of what we've just said. So then let's go in reverse order. Uh, so starting first to summarise, Kenny Shakti. You don't, we don't stand up, we just do it from where we're sitting. Kenny. I mean, I think, I think I've said it all. I think we're all here for the same reason. 
not because we dislike what's happening. There's always the good, the bad, and the ugly in any profession. There'll always be people that are short-sighted or trying to cut corners. Art is not about shortcuts and cutting corners, and there's no, short, there's no easy way to do it. So we're spe when you read the headlines in the newspapers after an auction, they're always focusing on the smallest thing. The biggest price is really the smallest fact. It's a minuscule part of the entire world that we all reside in. The big sales, the big numbers, the big headlines, they're really not an accurate uh, reflection of what the art world is like in the trenches. And 99% of the people, whether you're a collector, a dealer, an artist, or a curator, you're not, there's, no, there's not even the opportunity won't even arise in your lifetime to sell out. So I think that it's all futile to talk about. Ken, Ken is powerful and passionate, but um, uh, not everyone can speak over murmuring. So I'm going to be a firm chair and say, can you all be quiet while you're voting, please? Thank you. Um, Vanessa, Vanessa Carlos, your, your, your summary. Uh, I think that, as Kenny said, because we all love art and it's a manifestation of what makes us human in the first place, which is our consciousness, that's why it's so important that we recognize the moment we're going through um, that art has sold out to the market because we don't want to look back in 10 years' time and wonder why everything is so homogenous, uninspiring, and insincere. Shazia. So, yeah... Art has not sold out to the market because ultimately posterity, not the market, is the judge of great art. There always has been art that panders to the market. What's happening today is nothing new. But there are many artists today with integrity and ultimately time will judge. Fear at the, at the root of one's understanding of oneself has never contributed to great art or literature. Therein lies the challenge as artists to navigate this particular cultural moment of the banality of market without being defined by it. And Georgina. Um, well, I think it's rather interesting that Tate, so it's not my opinion, but Tate had an exhibition that um, was going to be called Sold Out. Yes. I'm not joking. Um, then it was called post-pop, wasn't and it? And then they turned it into post-pop, I think, because people were objecting. And I think perhaps the truth was a little bit painful in that case, and that's where uh, my position still is. Not all artists, not the whole art world, but there's a goodly body that is producing art that is boring, uninspiring, unoriginal, and that's because of the market. That's... Um you're all brilliantly succinct. Um, we're still going to talk a little bit while we get the vote. But the, it's very interesting, the Tate, that Tate sold-out thing, Georgina. You're, you're absolutely right, and, I, and I'd forgotten it. But wasn't that meant to be curatorial irony? <laughs> You'd have to ask the curator that. I don't know. But I know there are objections, and that's why it was... Yeah. I think some of the artists objected, actually. Well, a lot of us refused to be in it, didn't they? But because it was based around late Warhol to begin with, I suppose he got no option. <laughs> it's, it's funny, but I mean, Warhol basically opened the floodgates to everything that we're talking about. But the, the most, back to a little irony, I mean, Warhol was never able to sell out, not for lack of trying. Sure, he sold all these portraits to these people in Palm Beach and so forth, but at the, at the time of Andy Warhol's death, his auction record was $287,000 for a painting called $201 Bills. I mean, towards the end of his life, he was in the doghouse. No one considered him a serious artist. He was considered a bit of a hack. So although he implicitly tried to sell out and he created this whole you know, silkscreen process of infinite series... He was never able to sell out, despite his best intentions. Yeah, Back to dogs again, Labradors uh, and life 
expectancy and so on. Yeah, values were very different for a contemporary artist, though, in those days. Uh, you didn't have Frisch as making 20 million, uh, you know. Well, so. even in the 80s, there was <laughs> records of $80 million at auction. For a living artist? No. Did, um, as, the vo as the votes have, as, as, every, as everything's been counted, I can't be accused of getting involved in the debate. Um, did um, Georgina did um, did Turner sell out? There are over there are pretty well thirty thousand works in his will at the end of his life. That's a mass production in an era pre-mass production. In other words, these are drawings and paintings fundamentally. Uh, um, is that a sellout? Oh, I'm not such a specialist on that period. <laughs> <laughs> that is a sellout answer, but you've every right to do that. What, what, about, what about Rembrandt? I mean, in, in, in Rembrandt's life, he was a gigantic collector of the art of all of his peers. He made a fortune in his work, and he bought the biggest house in Amsterdam until he went bankrupt, he went bankrupt. lost all of his possessions, and in the end of his life, he couldn't paint in his own name. He had to take portraits under his common partner's name because his accounts were garnished. So this whole... Art and art and money have been bedfellows since eternity, and it's nothing new. In this time, maybe it feels a little bit worse than other times, but you know the natural selection process of economics will really flush it all out. I think, and time. And, and here is the vote. I, I do love the I do love the fact that I mean it does seem that time immemorial they've been close together. And I love your phrase flipping cave paintings. Actually, the, <laughs> I mean. How would it change our understanding of the world? I mean, the cave paintings are seen at the moment to be the origin of human consciousness in certain scholarly books, which I think is fascinating. Imagine if we found out that in the end it was an earliest form of commerce. <laughs> then we really would have known that human beings were sellouts from the start. Anyway, um, the pre-debate... Yeah, you remember the pre-debate. At the beginning, 51% of you were for it, 31% against, 18 undecided. The post-debate, 1% of you were undecided, well done, the rest of you voted. 45% of you were against the motion and 54% of you were for the motion. So with a, mar a marginal increase, the motion uh, is, is carried. Art Today has sold out to the market. Can I thank the four panellists? Thank you all for taking part. It was a good event. Thank you for listening. You can download more Intelligent Square podcasts free on iTunes and SoundCloud. If you'd like to find out more about our events, Sign up to our newsletter at intelligencesquared.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter.